Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings, Tavarishi. It has been a while, but we are back at the eastern border. This time, literally, as I'm recording this in my dad's place, which is in a small town called Ludza in the very eastern fringes of Latvia. So, I apologize for the sound quality beforehand, as this is done on a laptop. As promised before, this episode will focus on Leonid Ilyich Brezhnev, the Soviet leader about whom the most political jokes were made. Here's one for you. Brezhnev finds out that the Americans have gone to the moon. He says to his advisor, We must beat them. Let's launch an expedition to the sun. But Tavarish Brezhnev, they'll all burn to death. The advisor responds, Ah, but I'm not stupid, Brezhnev says to him. We'll make them fly in the night. And paradoxically, he's also one of the most loved Soviet leaders of all time. You see... Brezhnev did nothing, but a lot of things happened during his time in power. Well, he did almost nothing. His period is known for the stagnation in the USSR, and at the end of his reign, the senility and idiocy of the aging general secretary. He did nothing, for the most part, but he allowed everyone else to do whatever they damn pleased. At least, in the end period. At the same time... This is a period where USSR gets involved in quite a few military activities, creates another economic blunder, this time in the Far East, and hosts the Olympic Games. As you can see, there's a lot to talk about here, so let's start at the very beginning. Brezhnev was born in 1906 in Kamenskoye, in Ukraine. He graduated from the Dnipro-Dzerzhinsk Metallurgical Technicum in 1935. He joined the Communist Party, became a political commissar in a tank factory, and managed to survive the Stalin's purge in 1937, which is an achievement all by itself. In 1938, with some help from Khrushchev, who was at the time the general secretary of the party in Ukraine, he managed to get into a regional committee there. During the war, he volunteered, 
and was assigned as a political commissar, the guys who were responsible for managing the ideological stance of the soldiers, also reporting officers to KGB and overseeing them for any perilous thought. You know, just like Warhammer 40k. But the problem was, also, as the representatives on mission, if you know about the French Revolution, they were not only responsible for the political stance and all this control of the Communist Party, of the officers, they were also able to modify and even cancel the orders of the commander. And some some historians... Uh, especially here in Latvia, such as Kaspar Zelis, state that that is one of the reasons why why the Soviet army was so ineffective in the first years of war, which makes sense as these political officers didn't know as much about strategy and tactics, even if they knew anything at all. So, for this very reason, in 1942, this position was abolished, and Brezhnev became the officer's advisor in the political work. He managed to do quite well there, as he ended the war with the rank of Major General, without ever actually commanding the troops, of course. In 1950, he became a deputy of the Supreme Soviet of the USSR, and was promoted to the first secretary of the Moldavian SSR. That's the small country between Romania and Ukraine, just in case you didn't know. He was in this position until 1955, when he was made the general secretary of the Communist Party of Kazakhstan, which basically meant that he was responsible to Khrushchev for the USSR's space program, as all launches happened there in the Baikonur Cosmodrome. Kazakhstan was also the place where the Brezhnev's agricultural experiments happened, which didn't end well. During this time, he renewed his friendship with Khrushchev, became one of his people, and got some valuable connections and positions inside the party. This led to his promotion in the Politburo, and in May 1960, he was promoted to the post of Chairman of the Presidium of the Supreme Soviet, making him the nominal head of state, although the real power resided with Khrushchev as the first secretary of the Soviet Communist Party. He used this position to build up his own circle of followers and cohorts, and plotted to overthrow Khrushchev and take his place, which became especially necessary after the Cuban crisis, when Khrushchev's support plummeted and everyone was convinced he was crazy. Furthermore, Khrushchev did two things which irritated the leading elites to no end, so he had to go. Khrushchev shrank the army by quite a bit, and secondly, split up the party middle management into two branches to prevent consolidation of power. One branch was responsible for the industry, and the other one for the agrarian production, basically creating the situation where he was the only person who was allowed to see the whole picture in the USSR. And the always angry mob of communist party heads, which can be easily compared to medieval nobility, always seeking more power and autonomy, were not okay with this. What Stalin could do, Khrushchev could do no longer. And this leads us to the coup. Khrushchev, like all good and proper party leaders, enjoyed visiting other countries. He worked really, really hard to represent the best and the greatest country on the planet to the capitalist neighbors and made sure that the communist parties in those countries were all well financed. And sometimes the leading parties of our friendly socialist republics which were not directly in the USSR, 
such as Czechoslovakia and Poland, needed guidance, help and direction, of course. That last one didn't go that well, though. But that will be Brezhnev's problem. So, in October 1964, Hrushchev returning home from visits to Finland, Sweden and Czechoslovakia, our aging general secretary decided that Abkhazia, right next to the Black Sea, looks really nice in this time of year. Why Abkhazia and not Crimea, which is a much better known resort in the Black Sea? Well, Khrushchev wasn't liked much in Crimea, which demands a small detour. Khrushchev had just added Crimea to Ukraine, and the locals didn't like it that much. And here's a political rumor, being in the air at the time to explain this event. Now, it most likely is completely untrue, and even if it is true, then at best very partially, but it characterizes the mood of the country very well, so deserves a mention. As the Soviet people thought, Stalin, to get the money for the World War II war effort, had mortgaged Crimea to the Jewish banks and the big Jewish money, such as Rothschilds, for example, for the creation of the State of Israel. And although Israel had been already formed in 1947, no money from the USSR had been paid back. The Jews started to ask for their land then, to expand their country. So, Khrushchev formally donated Crimea from the Russian SSR to Ukrainian SSR to bypass the deal, saying that it had been made with the Russian SSR only, and as the land now belongs to Ukraine, there is nothing to be done about it. Again, this is most likely completely untrue, but it greatly characterizes the general mood of the population. Okay, back to vacations and elderly men with way too much political power. So, Khrushchev was enjoying his vodka and caviar when he, in the 12th of October, got a call from one Mikhail Suslov, also a member of the Politburo, who would later go on to become the ideological secretary under Brezhnev, the one responsible for all the mass media, art and culture in general, making sure that everyone properly respects and understands the proper ideology of the party. So, this Suslov calls Khrushchev, and informs him that he should return to Moscow, as the state of Soviet agriculture should be discussed. In reality, Brezhnev and his conspirators had arranged for a super-fast Politburo meeting to vote Khrushchev out of the active communist leadership. There was a minority of the assembled people who wanted to remove Khrushchev from the office of the first secretary, but retain him in some office or another. The majority, however headed by Brezhnev, wanted to force him in retirement completely. Organizing an emergency meeting wasn't easy, as the members lived in every part of the USSR, being the first secretaries of different republics. But of course, special airplanes were appropriated from the military, and everything went smoothly. You see, Khrushchev's people would prevent this if he was there to give the order. But when their leader was away on vacation, they had to follow the law, as otherwise, if they would try to resist, they could go straight to prison, which, as we all know by now, wasn't the nicest place to be. Khrushchev was called last. He needed to be there, sort of. It was a tradition, from Zhukov's time when Khrushchev ousted Zhukov in a similar manner, although the quorum was in place without him. When Khrushchev understood what was going on, 
than being the old man by now. He just replied, quote, If it is me who is the question, I will not make a fight of it. And in the very same meeting, where Khrushchev was ousted, Brezhnev was made the general secretary. It's important to notice that at the time, he was thought to be a transitionary office holder, although he managed to stay in office for 18 long and very strange years. An important choice made by Brezhnev was not to punish Khrushchev in any form. He believed that ousting was enough, although others, namely Alexei Kosygin, replacing Brezhnev in the official head of state position, and the aforementioned Suslov, wanted a prison sentence of some sort. That never came to pass, though, and Khrushchev was allowed to retire peacefully. The official reason, posted in the newspapers and in the media, was that Khrushchev had undermined the collective ideals of the party. Although the only thing which he truly didn't like was Stalinism, and its ultra-revolutionary ideals, economic policies, and the like. Including, of course, political executions, and everything that he made fun of during the 20th Congress of the party. Stalinism was the policy of which Brezhnev was a staunch defender of. It implied stability, after all. There wasn't much of fuss about this removal of Khrushchev in the public, however. At the time, there were serious economic problems in the state. Khrushchev's policies had led to famine in some parts of the country, and his wasteful erratic behavior, which we talked about in the first episode, together with the diplomatic breakdown with the United States of America, had made him very unpopular. Most of the people at the time believed that Brezhnev's would be a time of economic growth, stability, and development. Prosperity was sure to come! Boy, were they wrong. As soon as Brezhnev got the reins of power in his hands, he started doing... things. For the lack of a better word for it. For one, giving himself more medals than humanly possible. There was this medal called Hero of the Soviet Union the highest distinction in the whole USSR. It was given for, quote, heroic feats in service to the Soviet state and society. Stalin gave himself one of these too. For, you know, winning the war. He could have given himself as much as he wanted to, but decided that one is enough, because how many times can one really be a hero? Double hero sounds kind of stupid, and is disrespectful to people who were, like him, also heroes. Now, how about a quadruple hero? Yes, Brezhnev was such a mega hero, obviously, that he gave himself four of these medals. Of course, USSR wasn't the only country with its heroes, and our sister Soviet republics didn't want to fall behind in acknowledging the great leader who brought socialism to all of them. So, he also was Hero of the People's Republic of Bulgaria, three times. Hero of the Czechoslovak Socialist Republic, also three times. Hero of the Republic of Cuba, just once this time. Hero of the German Democratic Republic, again three times. And finally, Hero of the Mongolian People's Republic. Temujin would be proud. Of course, people made jokes about it to no end, saying that the fifth hero of the USSR should be given to Brezhnev after death for finally letting go of Kremlin. Another one was 
that Brezhnev must be getting a chest a chest operation right now. Why? Because his chest is too narrow to put more medals on it. And these medals, yeah, these are only the hero titles. Besides that, there was a bit less important but still very valuable Order of Lenin, given for, again, quote, outstanding services rendered to the state. He had eight of those. And to top it all off, he gave himself the highest civilian award as well, Hero of Socialist Labor. That one was awarded for exceptional war quality of work, giving something exceptional over the top and above and beyond the call of duty to the Soviet state. And, of course, a myriad and a bazillion of a bunch of other smaller medals and orders. When even that wasn't enough, he gave himself the Order of Victory. It was the highest military decoration awarded for World War II service in the Soviet Union, and it's one of the rarest orders in the world. The order was awarded only to generals and marshals for successfully conducting combat operations involving one or more army groups and resulting in a, quote, successful operation within the framework of one or several fronts, resulting in a radical change of the situation in favor of the Red Army. Only 20 such orders have been awarded, 12 of them for the Soviet leaders, 19 for actually doing great things in the war, and one... Well, because Brezhnev really, really, really wanted it. This order was revoked posthumously, however, as otherwise it was starting to look a bit beyond silly by that time. Of course, he had some smaller awards too, of which one is especially important. It's the Lenin Prize for Literature, which Brezhnev received for the first book of his memoirs called Brezhnev Trilogy, the small land. The small land was special. And special in the bad kind of way. Before Brezhnev's coming to power, everyone was already used to learning about Marxism in school, reading Lenin and Marx and sometimes Stalin, but that got out of, out of favor pretty soon after Khrushchev's coming to power. But now everyone had to read Brezhnev. I haven't read the book personally, though, but my parents have, and a lot of my friends' parents have, because the book is almost destroyed by now, and nobody really even cares to put that on the internet. The book itself doesn't even have a Wikipedia section, or, or any place that you can look. If, if you know that this book, the, the Small Land, it could also be known as The Little Earth, as the Russian name is Amalia Zimlya, could be found somewhere in Russian or in English, Feel free to give me a, give me a notice there. But yeah, this book was his memoirs, which he obviously didn't write himself, because by the time the book came out, he was already so senile and uh, dis- disconnected from the world and a bit crazy that nobody could possibly believe that he could he could even do it. By that time, he was already reading all of his speeches from a piece of paper, and he was carrying strips of paper with him everywhere, even pulling them out when time to give interviews came. So, the book was a butt of many jokes, but everyone had to read it in schools and universities and everywhere. And that was was pretty typical, because he truly was one of the more as obviously seen here, one of the most ambitious leaders of the Soviet Union, 
because he really wanted the glory and the awesomeness that being a leader of a great country brings you. Then again, not everything was terrible, because in this ambition he wanted to be honored a lot. So one of the good things that he did was actually thawing a bit, just a bit, all these national culture elements in the Soviet Union. There was this huge rumor that the before mentioned Suslov, the responsible one for the agitation and the ideology of the Soviet Union, that he had written the book. And it's actually very likely that he did. Now, this Suslov, he had a bunch of people under him on his own. And one of them was a man called Anatoly Lyapin. He was the head of television. All of Soviet television. And he was very party-centered about this matter. He actually said to the official newspapers, such as Pravda, that he will refuse to show any people with beard on television, because that's not Soviet. Now, at one point, he had to make an exception for Tur Heyerdahl, the famous explorer with, with his rafts of Fra and Kontiki, who explored the possibility of Egyptians traveling to Americas and, and people from Americas traveling to Asia. Yeah, he was on television and he was just a bit too famous for that time. But apparently there are stories of this Lapian actually actually considering telling Tur Heyerdahl to just cut his beard off and instead of instead of showing him. So yeah, now that you know that Lapin is, uh, there's this another, like I said, there's a million jokes about Brezhnev, and you know, they fit in this episode quite well, I think. So there's another one about, again, this little earth phenomenon, which is just excellent. So Brezhnev just calls Lapin in his office and asks him, hey, have you read the little earth book? And Lapin isn't stupid, he answers straightforward. Well, uh, yes, I have. It's a genius work. I've read it twice. It's the most truthful book about World War II ever. And Brezhnev just sits there and says, Huh, wow, everyone keeps telling me that. Maybe I should read it as well. And that was the era where basically everyone who was still alive tried to put out these memoirs. It was just huge. If you were in some sort of party position, by the end of the 60s, you had to have your memoirs out, you had to tell everyone what did you do in the war, even if it was all fake and fabricated. Then again, as everyone was too busy polishing their own glories up and just enjoying the high life, and really not much leading the country, actually, just doing their political games and intrigues and not watching everything, the stagnation kind of hit in the way that nobody really did anything. Of course, there were these threats... And there was the threat from the KGB, and people were still afraid. But it had come to this post-totalitarianism now. So by by this point, people were starting to understand that as long as they pay some tribute to the USSR, it will probably leave them alone. And for the better. So, now that we have determined what Brezhnev liked best, which is not doing anything on his own, adding more medals to his collection, and allowing other people of his own to run free, let's look at the very, very few things that he actually did. And that would be oppressing people, of course. Because why not, really? Besides him being a staunch Stalinist and cancelling many of the Khrushchev's liberal reforms, I'm of course talking about Prague Spring, the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia during that time was a federated Soviet Republic, 
because Czechs and Slovaks are not the same people, although they are both West Slavic. In the early 60s, Czechoslovakia underwent an economic downturn. What a surprise there. It's a socialist country. They always do this. You see, uh, the Soviet Union, of course, allowed the locals to rule, to be in power. They had their own communist party and they had their nominal independence. But they were a Warsaw Pact country. But the Soviets basically sent their advisors and commissars and political agitators to Czechoslovakia to just influence them, which basically meant controlling them and making sure the Czechoslovaks did what they wanted. They also tried to implement the industrialization model of the Soviet Union to Czechoslovakia, but the problem was Czech Republic was a highly, highly industrialized country even before that. It was basically a Western country. So the Soviet model of industrialization, which was meant for poorer countries, really didn't work there. After this, the average quality of life, of course, went down, and people started to get a bit grumpy. So, in 1967, the Writers' Union, they also had one, all the countries had one, decided in their own meeting to protest, and they wrote some pieces calling for reform, that some reform was really, really, really needed. And they put a lot of blame on the president at that time, Antonin Novotny. They, of course, got suppressed. But Antonin Novotny, by that time, was already hugely unpopular, so he was seeking for any support he could get, and he invited Brezhnev to visit the country. But he was so hated in the country because of all of that what happened in the early 60s and up to that period that even Brezhnev thought it's time for him to go. So, after his resignation and just going away, a man called Alexander Dubček was elected the first secretary of the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia, which was basically the lead post as every first secretary ruled their own Soviet country. But Brezhnev didn't know that this Dubček fellow was in close communion and had ties with this previously mentioned writers' union. So, he decided to make some reforms, which the writers' union, where his friends were, demanded them. <clears throat> which were demanded by his friends in the writers' union. He tried to build what he called a socialism with a human face. In April of 1968, Dubček launched this so-called action program, which was a program of liberalization, basically increasing freedom of the press, freedom of speech, and freedom of movement, with economic emphasis on consumer goods instead of the all-consuming military, which was running the country just like USSR, and the possibility, he was just hinting on this possibility, of a multi-party government. that you could, Of course, the, the, all the parties would have to be socialist. There are no questions about that. But, you know, there could be a bit more than just the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia. Of course, everyone else in the Warsaw Pact, except Hungary, by the way, specifically. But as Hungary was oppressed 10 years earlier, in 1958, yeah, they really couldn't do much. Which is an interesting tradition. The Soviet Union only oppresses people in the years ending with eight. 1958, Hungary, 1968, Czechoslovakia, 1978, Afghanistan, 
And guess what? 2008, Georgia. So, yeah, let's wait until let's wait until 2018 and see what happens then. So, on so so other countries of the Warsaw Pact bloc, which was USSR and its satellites, decided to have a meeting on their own and just, you know, wave the finger a bit, a bit on Mr. Dubček. So, on August the 3rd, representatives, including our old fellows, which were Brezhnev, Kosygin and Suslov, form from the Farshaw 5, and Czechoslovakian representatives met in Bratislava, which is now the capital of Slovakia, and signed the Bratislava Declaration. The declaration affirmed, <clears throat> quote now, unshakable fidelity to Marxism-Leninism and proletariat internationalism, and declared an implacable struggle against bourgeoisie ideology and all anti-socialist forces. But this, although this declaration was signed, it didn't stop Dubček from doing reforms or from changing his mind all too much, because all in all that was just a piece of paper. Just like everything in the Soviet Union, by that time random scraps of paper written by government leaders weren't taken that much seriously. Also, Brezhnev had some fears of NATO actually taking control of the Czech part and at least partially the Slovak part of Czechoslovakia because of the earlier Israel-Arab war. I'm not going to take a huge look at that because that's outside of outside of the scope of the eastern border. But so would you know, Arabs tried to invade Israel, miserably failed, Israel got a bunch of territories in the so-called Six Days War. So... As Brezhnev is a bit afraid of NATO just grabbing huge lands of Czechoslovakia and then not being able to do anything about it because Brezhnev didn't want to start a nuclear war, he decides to invade, take control of the Czechoslovakia himself, hopingly grabbing more land than the United States of America would. So, in 1968, on the night of 20th to 21st of August... About 200,000 troops and about 2,000 tanks entered the country. Now, writer Viktor Suvorov, in his book Tales of a Liberator, writes about this situation as apparently either he or someone he knew was in the forces invading Czechoslovakia. The first part is that uh, everyone in the Soviet army basically had tanks. But there was a lack of of APCs, armored personnel carriers, for a while, especially active at this period. But what you probably didn't know is that all the cars, all the cars in the Soviet Union, every civilian car, every car belonging to a kolkhoz, every car ever, was in the database. I'm sure your country has some database of cars as well. Our hazard says that there. But the Soviet Union had all these cars accounted for, and technically, they were they were able to be requisitioned by the army at any moment. So that's that's what happened basically. So the army needed some transportation means, so they requisitioned a bunch of cars from the populace, from kolkhoz and from everywhere. But the problem was, the most of the cars they requisitioned that were available for requisition because all the fancy cars were taken by the party members. And they had some extra special protection. But the cars they got were basically 50 to 51 models. 1950 to 1951, of course, I mean. 
and they were really old and they weren't that useful for moving around much but that's what the army used also one of the fun things was that this invasion force they got fed the best food available which is basically for foreign food because you know invading a somewhat more western country than USSR which is on the path to liberalism and might be supported by the United States yeah these guys got all the foreign stuff they could get all from the embassies or whatever and they got fed the best rations they had extra fruit they had swiss chocolate they had everything you could imagine and could never ever see in the soviet union and it was meant to boost the morale of the soldiers although most of them couldn't even read or speak russian as we have talked about earlier but still really they were just supposed to be impressed so that they wouldn't run away in case of Czechoslovakia having much more in the stores than the USSR and in case of the populace getting too friendly which is what they did uh, the invasion was meant to be some sort of a blitzkrieg edition so it was supposed to be just the enter and then it's all over but it lasted for eight months it was a civil peaceful resistance though The Czechs were an inventive people. They redirected road signs uh, or just repainted them, which actually caused the tank division from Poland to go through <clears throat> very weird routes and end up back in Poland without even going anywhere. They tried to mess around with people. They spray painted on the tanks. There were protest actions all over Czechoslovakia, and the people just went on the street and sometimes drank with the bored soldiers because hey what are you going to do you're sitting in a tank in the middle of a city the city's hostile to you and you know you better mess around and hang around with the people who are coming towards you and being friendly to you and saying that they just want to live better rather than just walk around alone or with some pals around the streets and you know get stoned from the local building or get your head smashed in by a local punk which also happens sometimes uh, this comes from the book uh, the liberators stories of course because official statement is that it was a completely peaceful resistance but i really doubt that ang- angry punks really pissed off at their people being being sent to gulags and oppressed could be as peaceful as it as it says it was rarely than people got killed though but but beating each other up was quite commonplace it happened also here in the early 90s when there were some conflicts all in all peaceful but it doesn't mean that every person ever will be a completely peaceful protester and of course the soviets weren't any slouchers either i mean there was as usual massive drunkenness and there was a lot of marauderism here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Because frankly, yeah, what are you going to do for eight months in a city with a somewhat hostile populace which just comes towards you and discusses politics with you? quite openly, and just points out every fault of socialism that you can imagine. But although massive drunkenness was an everyday problem in the Soviet army, you really couldn't do that in the Western countries and while you're sitting in the tank. So how did the soldiers get their liquor? Every drugstore was basically walked over, and and the people had somehow acquired spirits, which they then powered into their tank radiators because, hey, it's not like we're going anywhere. So all of this mess is happening in the Czech Republic, and the West, to the surprise of everyone, doesn't do much at all. I mean, there are some protests and embassies and some discussions and some public events and and the protest in Helsinki, but not much happens. But after a while, the Czechs got a bit tired and, you know, Soviet tanks sitting in your city, not very fun. So, after a while, after these eight months, a new government of Czechoslovakia was kind of put together and the normalization had begun. Remember the open borders? Yeah, about 70,000 of Czechs or and Slovaks fled the country immediately when the invasion happened, with, it, with an eventual total of some 300,000 Czechs and Slovaks fleeing from the country being invaded. They were allowed to leave because of these reforms, and they used them. In 1969, the situation was under control by the Soviet government. I think one of the things they did, they reinstated the suppression of free speech. This is the time when we meet the famous student Jan Palach. Jan Palach was a very, very nice person. He protested the Soviet, like most Czechs, on 16th of January on 1969. This student Jan Palach... He set himself on fire in the Venceslas Square, which is a weird, weird translation in English because in original Czech that sounds about like Václavská náměst to protest the suppression of the free speech which happened. So yeah, even Czechs like to burn burn themselves alive now and then. Now an interview which was given, according to Yaroslava Moserova, a burn specialist who was first provide care to Palach. He did not set himself on fire to protest against the Soviet occupation itself, but did so to protest against the demoralization of Czechoslovak citizens caused by the occupation. Quote, It was not so much in opposition to the Soviet occupation, but the demoralization which was setting in, that people were not only giving up, but giving in. And he wanted to stop the demoralization. I think the people in the street, the multitude of people in the street, silent, with sad eyes, serious faces, when you looked at those people, you understood that everyone understands that all the decent people were on the verge of making compromises. The funeral of Palach, of course, turned into a major protest against the occupation, and a month later, another student, Jan Zajik, burned himself to death in the same place. Followed in the April of the same year by Evgen Polcek, in another town called Yichlava. You can understand that the Soviet invasion was taken very seriously if people are literally burning themselves to death. And that makes you think a bit about the fact that it was better to just burn yourself and to show some statements rather than keep existing under this Soviet regime. Because the regime was 
tough on people. It was harsh and you really couldn't do much in it. You didn't feel free, although some people lived quite quite well. But those people were mostly the higher-ups. And yeah, the sentiment was, was terrible. And it was just everywhere, everywhere, all around the place. I mean, there are famous photos of people just escaping uh, through Berlin to the West Germany. And that's why the Berlin Wall was built. And the guards escaped and everyone escaped. And there were these, these massive controls. Basically, the Soviet Union was prison to all of those inside. And the people were not happy there, for the most part. Some were, but that was a rarity. And that is why we really had the biggest biggest border guard on the planet, with its own tanks and artillery and everything. In April 1969, just after Evgen Plotsek had burned himself, a new government was fully instated in Czechoslovakia. Dubček was replaced as first secretary by Gustav Husak. And a period of so-called normalization began. Dubček himself was treated better than you would expect in his position. He was just expelled from the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia, and in the end he was given a job as a forestry official. And everything went back to its own normal stagnation for a while. I mean, you should probably have heard of the Czech hockey player Jaromir Jager. He was quite famous, and I think that he still is. He always wears the number 68, which he has worn throughout his career, in honor of this incident, which which occurred in Czechoslovakia. And his grandfather, who died while in Soviet prison in the same year, And of course, the Czechs who managed to emigrate, yeah, they also continued to support their old country by working in Radio Free Europe and advocating for liberty and freedoms of speech and other things unheard of in the great Soviet empire. Now, what also happened relevant to our story is that the Prague Spring really worsened the relationships of the Western European leftists and the Soviet Union and somewhat influenced China's later decision to move towards a somewhat capitalist state. I mean, they have state communism, but with capitalism mixed in, and it's very, very complicated. And thus ended the Prague Spring. But, though our podcast doesn't end at that point. So, let's take a look at what happened between the Prague Spring and invasion of Afghanistan next. Now, it's kind of hard to talk about what happened in the Soviet Union between 1968 and the Prague Spring, and 1978, early 1979, and the invasion of Afghanistan, because this is the time where truly the stagnation hit in, the deep recession hit. This truly was now a dictatorship of bureaucracy. People were just doing their own thing, messing with the government, as explained in previous episodes, doing all sorts of prohibited stuff and the bureaucracy and the central planning getting more and more crazy each passing day. Meanwhile, Brezhnev is sitting in his dacha, that's summer house, in Sochi and just adding more and more medals to his collection. Well, truth to be told, there were some things, but again, we're returning back to the anecdotal level of stuff happening. Well, in 1970, there was this 100-year anniversary of Lenin, 
which got the Uagrep in, which we looked at in the previous episode, made. Otherwise, there was this central program, which was basically an attempt from bureaucracy to scream, oh my god, we have nothing in our country, let's make something, let's let's find a reason to make something. So, everyone was called to make more than than you were allocated to, because everything was planned. Now, that led to some things which were strange, such as, well, my grandfather... He worked in the road building industry, civil engineering. He worked there for about 70 years. He got a lot of medals for it. And when the 1970 came, and it was time for Lenin's birthday, and everyone was called to make more than everyone had planned, well, it's not like they had so much more materials to build asphalt on on roads here in Latvia. And it's not like they could do anything else useful, so they were trying really hard to figure how to do this, as it was expected from everyone. But then, some very kind and nice people in the city of Daugopils, which is in the southern part of uh, Latvia, decided that, yeah, digging ditches is the way to go. So they bravely reported that they have du- that they have overcompleted, I mean, done more than necessary, the plan for the ditches to be dug for 200%. That means they either dug twice the depth or dug twice more than necessary, which can lead to disastrous results if you're building bridges and roads and in general being a civil engineer. But that's what everyone did to get their premiums. Otherwise, nobody cared. Second thing which happened was the 50th anniversary of the USSR. Yeah, it might surprise you, although there was this revolution earlier, officially the USSR was pronounced and declared in the 30th of November 1922. This wasn't really cared about a lot either, because after the Prague Spring, everyone had understood that, one, it's dangerous to send your troops away to lands which are more advanced than you are, and where people actually live normal lives, and two, really the USSR is no longer any proud, nice place to be, we're getting behind on everything, and yeah, 50th anniversary of that, yeah, sure, let's use more red paint on everything, which is exactly what happened. Now then, what did happen and was fun, and again, lots of legends were built about, built around this, but hey, that's what I'm here for. Uh, starting from 1973, or 1974, everyone was preparing for the Olympic Games in Moscow in 1980. That was THE big event, about which we'll talk in the next episode, sadly. But that was THE big event, for which everyone everything must have been perfect. You see, foreigners will come in our country. They're going to take a look at what we have, so we must show these filthy capitalist pigs that we we are just as advanced as they are. Of course. But this led to some strange events. All the stadium building and everything included, but one thing which actually happened was that in this time, the Jews were allowed to emigrate to Israel. Yes, although although the state of Israel had existed for some time already, the Jews weren't allowed to leave the USSR to go to Israel, at least not legally, because why would you? This is the best country on the planet. 
Now, to gain some public recognition, Brezhnev decided that it might be good to just allow them to leave. Well, some of them. And you know what that means? Someone can leave the USSR, they will take the chance. So a lot of them left. Really a lot of them. Well, at least the ones who got the money anyways. And there are a couple of stories about this, because this really happened in the 70s, and the Jewish people had, well, those who those who were able to leave had managed to acquire some wealth. Leaving was one thing, but taking any wealth with you, any cash, well, over a certain amount, which was ridiculously small, taking any valuables with you, such as gold, platinum, jewelry, whatever, taking that strictly forbidden. So, although the next story sounds a bit crazy, and the people who told me this uh, swear that the story is true, and it was circulated around in about 1975 in Riga, this Jewish dentist in Riga, and his car, Zhiguli. Zhiguli car, well, if you have seen any episodes of Top Gear, you know that that wasn't a particularly good car. But, you see, this dentist loved his Zhiguli for some reason, and the reason was that he, through various means, as you weren't allowed to take any money with you, he had converted his money to about 2-3 kilos of platinum. Obviously, you can't take platinum out of the country either. But he had a plan. So, when he wants to leave through a train station and then move into an airplane, he has his Zhiguli car strapped onto a, a train platform, and he says he's so in love with his car that he just won't leave without it. Of course, the local officials probably know that he wants to take something of value out, so they just offered to him that, you know, it's kind of hard to, like, take like a whole car, because you have to do it a bit covertly, so as he wouldn't just decide to stay and take his platinum with him. Besides, how he had accumulated this money. Well, you know, you really had nothing to spend it on, so if you were doing some mercantile stuff and wanted to trade for something for your family, yeah, people tended to accumulate amounts of wealth because really, again, because of the economy, there was nothing to spend it on. So this dentist goes like, no, 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 I really, really love my car. I won't won't leave without it. It's super awesome. So the people, nice people from KGB, searched the car throughout, completely searched over, no platinum inside. But they really knew that he had this platinum with him. So they asked him, hey, uh, just leave the Zhiguli here, it's hard, money up front, we'll recompensate it for you. And he says, well, guys definitely know, I just love my car. And then they all go, and then they all repeat the the question, just saying, you know, um, it's kind of hard to do it. See, how about we just contact the embassy of Israel and tell them about the, situ- about the situation and pay them, and they're just going to get you a better car. And the dentist is, again, refusing and saying that, no, 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 I really like my Zhiguli car. So... This time, although the car has been searched thoroughly, it has been untied from the platform, it has been searched. This time they untied from the platform, because if the, if the dentist really, really likes this car, that means he has hidden the platinum in there somewhere. So they take it apart. 
to every tiniest detail possible. They just unscrew it completely. They just they they just strip it, carcass details, everything, and they don't find anything of suspicion at all. So they just had to they just had to put the car back together and let let the dentist from Briga leave. Now I have heard two endings of this story, but either way, one of them has to be true. Or at least some part of this has to have some merit of truth. Although, again, everyone swears to me that this is completely, completely true. One ending is that the platinum was in the screws. Basically, the screws which held the guard together, because it was held together by screws mostly from the inside, was made from this platinum. He had arranged for that. The other part was that he had he had worked in the platinum in strands, which made the cables with which the car was was tied to the the train platform. Which is very interesting, but again, again shows at least this shows you the mood of the day. But yeah, as with all such stories, I'm pretty sure that if not exactly this, then something like this just had to happen. Now, one thing which is documented, at least by Latvian historian Kaspar Zels, no less. Um, this It's that the, a, lot of, a lot of the Jews emigrating to other countries just use their rubles, which they had accumulated in all the other valuables, and then they transferred them into dollars, US dollars, through black market, suspicious, suspicious means, whatever. Because you just couldn't go and say, hey, I want to buy some dollars in... in you just you just couldn't go to the exchange point and buy some dollars. You had to grow go through some really unofficial channels there. So they spent insanely huge amounts of rubles to buy these dollars. But when they bought them, they just called to their home someone vi- visiting from from the western parts of the world because you know you could invite some people in. And some of these people had relatives, and if not relatives, then they made some friends. Anyway, through some means, some foreigner, mostly American, I'm pretty sure that the United States intelligence was informed about all of this, was invited to come visit them. So they could enter the Soviet Union freely, and then they were invited to the home of the Jewish person. So then what would happen is that all the serial numbers of the dollars were written down on the paper while the eyewitness, this foreigner, was looking at it, and then all the dollars were burned. But, you know, you had their numbers, their serial numbers on on a paper somewhere with their denominations or something, I suppose. So, as they would emigrate, they would then go to the U.S. Embassy of Israel and just present this list with the numbers and with the testimony of the witness and whatever, so that they would get their money reimbursed back to them, which would count because they would have to burn these these dollars because they just couldn't take them with them. And yeah, that, that sounds plausible enough, although I don't know if any, any actually got reimbursed. So if I have any Jewish people who immigrated from the USSR listening to this show, feel free to inform me about this. Now... There were other stories about uh, about Jews leaving. For one, there were a lot of fake marriages made. A lot of fake marriages with Jewish people so that you would count as Jewish and would qualify for emigration. 
This again leads to an Armenian radio joke. I'm starting to think that every episode here is going to have an Armenian radio joke, but they just made so many of them. So, <clears throat> Armenian radio gets a question. How many Jews have emigrated from the Baltics? Armenian radio answers. 110%. Because basically everyone wanted to emigrate, those who could afford it at least, and everyone around them also wanted to join them. So yeah, a lot of fake marriages, a lot of bribery, a lot of accumulated wealth was going everywhere. Uh, another trick of, of uh, Jewish people taking their money with them in some form or another was that there was this Jewish person, and this also comes from a story from a real person, so there was this Jewish person who had some gold, which he wanted to take with him, obviously. So he made a statuette of it and coated it with, with some other metal. It was a statuette of Lenin. So when he left the Soviet Union, he basically told the border guards that, hey, I just love Lenin so much that I just want to take the statuette with me. And they allowed him to leave, so that's how he got his, so that's how he got his couple of kilos of gold over the border. And a lot of the migrants, by the way, who could make it were dentists and doctors and people of, of office. Not not much of the party membership, actually, but really doctors, engineers, educated elite, those who really benefited in, in some way or form from leaving the Soviet Union. But an important thing happened concerning my nationality, which is Latvians. You see, we have this festival called Yani. I've talked about this in episode one, I suppose, but I'll just remind you. That's our national festivity. It's very folk, very traditional. It's dedicated to drinking beer, eating cheese, and singing loud folk songs. Nowadays, it's basically folk metal, but, well, for my generation at least, but for some people, it's still very traditional, and it's the hugest festival of the summer. It's celebrated in the 24th of June. In the 1950, they forbade this celebration as it was deemed too nationalistic. In 1960, it was allowed to do so during Khrushchev's era. But when Brezhnev came to power, it was, it was looked down upon. He didn't outright forbade the celebration of this festival, of this national celebration. He just tried to make it international and not nationalistic at all. For example, he tried to prohibit drinking beer on this festival. That miserably failed. Then, a lot of important party people went around lecturing people around Kolhos and their culture houses about how Yanya was an atavism and how people shouldn't do that and how that's anti-Soviet, and they tried to eliminate all the references from the wor of the word Yanis from everywhere, which led to some very funny incidents, such as in Latvian, for example, we call fireflies Yantarpini. Yeah, they changed that to speed hukaini, which basically means glowing bugs, because the word firefly, or in my case, jaintarpinch, includes the word janis in it. And it kind of hurts you when janis is the most popular name of the whole country. It's like John in English or Ivan in Russian. But in the early 70s, this again shifted a bit. Because Brezhnev decided that, yeah, you know, some nationalism which would be turned into some international Soviet-ish fashion, 
might be okay. So that's when you got the funny Janfest. Uh, it's a traditional part of the Latvian National Garb to wear for the women to wear diadems. Just, you know, they're, they're woven and they're made from fabric with, with all sorts of Latvian traditional signs on them. And in Jani, the men wear wreaths made from oak leaves. And the women tend to wear ones made from, made from all sorts of flowers. You know, you go to, go to a local meadow. We have a lot of those and a lot of forts here. We're not that of an urbanized country yet. So we have a lot of forests and meadows, so women just women and men just go to whatever closest meadow that you have and make wreaths or diadems or crowns. So that's what we are on those. Now, Brezhnev tried to popularize, popularize a certain different idea of what wreaths should be worn there. So what we got was paper diadems with, for example, Russian signs on them or Ukrainian symbolism. You know, traditional Latvian festivity with Ukrainian folk symbols on your wreaths. Thank you very much. Oh, and that wasn't it. <clears throat> we also got ones with in the Czech variety or Moldavian, stuff like that. But when that didn't help, as people were just outright laughing at this idea that why would we do this? They started making sombreros with Latvian symbols on them. Seriously. Everyone in the Soviet Union was mostly obsessed in the official level with either Mexicans or Native Americans. Why? Because we tried to show that we care about the common American person. Not the government, but we care about the common people. We like uh, cowboys. Then we didn't like cowboys anymore because they were oppressive. But... Apparently, Native Americans were a-okay because they, just like the just like the poor worker in the city, were being oppressed by the Americans. And Mexicans were always like the poor working class man with the United States of America, so we like them too. Hey, no offense to, to Mexican people who are listening to this show. But technically, the Soviet Union decided that we really should push for some multiculturalism for this national festivity. So the famous uh, sombrero with Latvian signs on it was made. Not only sombreros, oh no, no, no. We got a lot of... We got, we got even cowboy hats made with this. I'm going to try and find a picture for you. If I don't, it's upcoming in the following episodes. I promise on this one. Now, of course, I wouldn't be able to talk about the 70s anywhere on the planet if I wouldn't mention the hippies. Yes, we had them in a bit of a different variety than in the other parts of the world. But still, our hippies weren't accused of communism, no. Our hippies were accused of having not enough communism. Our guys didn't protest so much against consumerism and big government as the whole socialistic regime and the prison of nations, the USSR. The hippie movement started here at about 1970, when the records of Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin were smuggled in. They got a huge boost when the Riga Polytechnical Institute, which is now known as the Riga Technical University, Students Club got opened in the old Riga Church of England church building. And now a sidetrack to explain why we have a Church of England congregation in Riga, because I'm pretty sure you're surprised about that. And yes, it is still active now. 
The church was built in 1859 because due to Russo-English trade relationships and Riga being one of, if not the primary Baltic seaports of the Russian Empire, we had a lot of English merchants living here. So they decided to get themselves a church. The local Orthodox metropolite prohibited the building of the church because he wouldn't allow heretics to build new churches on the soil of the true Christians. So, the merchants, together with some people from the local city government, because a lot of them were Lutherans or Catholics who didn't like the Orthodox themselves, and they were mostly German in the government and the, in the bourgeoisie of the city, because the Russians never really got a huge hold at that time over here, found a loophole in this rule. The ground where the church was supposed to be built was covered with about 30 centimeters that's about two and a half feet, with soil that was brought from England by ship. And one of these people who helped build the church was George Armistead, who later went on to become the mayor of Frigga from, ni- from 1901 to his death in 1912. He's actually remembered as a really great mayor and as an honorable person. And when Queen Elizabeth II visited us in 2006, he even got himself a monument. His wife and their little dog, too. Yes, the dog is in the monument, too. In the Soviet era, the church was confiscated and later vandalized, but then the Institute got their hands on it, and it became a hippie central of Riga. It is now again a Church of England congregational building, but they hold concerts there sometimes, and they also have a special mass for the LGBT people each year after their pride thing. They're very liberal like that. It must be from the hippies. But yeah, back and again about the hippies. They also didn't use a lot of drugs here. The USSR, you see, had a very strict drug policy. And it was very hard to get even cannabis. The exception was morphine, acquired mostly from young, corrupt doctors. Who, by the way, formed the majority of the drug users together with the criminal population in the Latvian SSR. But the hippies didn't like this, and mostly stuck to booze. As, you know, the average Soviet citizen. They were, of course, made fun of, officially diagnosed as mentally ill, publicly shamed, and otherwise suppressed. But that didn't help, as they were doing things against the USSR government, which made them very popular, and sometimes even envied, by those who would love to grow long hair and wear baggy clothes just to stick it up to Brezhnev, but couldn't do so, because of their work or status in the party or whatever. So, the hippies stuck around until the 80s, when the punks came. And, after enduring the Afghan war, there wasn't a lot of time for young people to hang around anyways. They were recruited. Many of the early 70s hippies died in there. But that's... That's for the next episode, I suppose. And that's it for today's episode. Next time, I'll talk about the Afghanistan war, the Olympic Games in Moscow, and the last years of Brezhnev. There are some things I'd like to say to you, however, before the conclusion. Firstly, sorry for the messed up schedule. I've had some serious health issues lately, and that has taken a lot of time and resources to handle. I promise to be more accurate in the future. Secondly, between this one and before the next historical episode, I'll be starting to do the second part of the things I promised in the intro one. And I will release a political episode explaining the European migrant crisis from an Eastern European perspective. 
which will mean telling you the standpoints of Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia on this issue, explaining you how we differ from the very liberal Scandinavian countries, and introduce you to a few, but very interesting, facts about Hungary. Which, by the way, has declared itself to be a non-liberal democracy, and their president is an... uh, interesting fellow, to say the least. That episode will be available shortly, but if you are not interested in such things, feel free to ignore it. However, take note that I will not be taking any sides in that episode, just telling you the general viewpoints of what the politicians and the majority of the people think here, and just giving you the facts. So, please, don't bury me with angry comments calling me a crazy Latvian with no idea how the world works. Hey, I'm a crazy Latvian with a sharpened shovel, for sure, but I'm also a person who likes to think. And finally, and I know I should have done this in the beginning, I have a recommendation for you. If you are interested in the wars of Reformation in Europe and or the Thirty Year War, and what and how the Reformation did, be sure to Google up Wittenberg to Westfalia podcast. It's made by an urban planner living in Rhode Island, Benjamin Jacobs. He he has a good style, and if you're interested in the subject matter even a little bit, you should give it a try. So, thank you for listening, and до свидания. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.